The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Hi, and welcome to the Winemakers. This is Brian Casey. I'm here with my friend Bart Hansen. We went on the road again this week. So we had a fun time when we went to West Sac, and um, we're lucky enough to come up and get invited uh, to hang out with Tegan Pasolacquif uh, up here or across from Sonoma, right? Yeah, across. We're definitely across. Bart drove. I'm not exactly sure if we were going up or we're down. We're still on Highway 12, though. That's Which the, is that's a, awesome a really thing. cool thing. So, uh, Bart, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm really enjoying our day out here in uh, in Lodi. We're actually in Victor, California here, um, the, the mecca of Victor. I call it and the Hamlet. The Hamlet. There you go. There you go. <laughs> and um, and we're here visiting with Tegan. Uh, Tegan, of course, is the winemaker at Turley Wine Cellars and also of his own brand. Or I should say he's the winemaker of his own brand, Sandlands. Right. And then his second uh, job is working for a small winery called Turley. And uh, Tegan, thank you for having us. <laughs> Thanks for coming um, out. Yeah. Thanks for making yeah. the trip. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a there's plenty of people to find and see in Sonoma and Napa and stuff, but um, I don't think people really quite understand what Lodi is all about. And I know that I've learned a lot more. I thought I knew a little bit, and I've learned a ton more now. And so uh, let's get into it right there. Let's get into it. Uh, well, yeah, we just had a nice drive uh, around looking at some of these old vine vineyards, but... Um, how did you first come about some of these vineyards over here in Lodi? Well, the first time I came out to Lodi was in 2003, and I came out for harvest uh, when we were harvesting the Dogtown Vineyard for Turley. And then in 2004, I started coming back and taking on some responsibility with the farming because Turley leases Dogtown. And I was bringing out rootstock and worm castings and kind of overseeing the compost applications and I remember spending time out here and having lunch and go, wow, I, I actually really like it out here. In 2004, I started talking to people about what would five acres cost? You know, in 2004 and 2005, prices were still ridiculously high. Yeah, like what was the price at that point? Well, back then, it seemed to be that anything five to 20 acres basically was half a million bucks. And it was because it was a home site. It was like a home site, half a million bucks. You want to build a house. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't really matter if, what the property was. It was about half. And that was unplanted, just land. Right. Wow. So, so by no means cheap, um, but in comparison to Sonoma Napa um, pricing. For sure. Uh, affordable or For sure. at least doable. Right. Yeah. And that, that that's definitely, you know, I it's not that high right now i mean you can get better value out here than you could 15 years ago in some instances yeah interesting interesting so you know most of our listeners if you've had you know wines from sonoma and napa we as people that live in sonoma county a lot of times drink wines from lodi but a lot of us have never been out here before i mean we drink um, and, and some of the winemakers that we're getting the wines from are based in sometimes Sonoma and Napa, but are sourcing fruit from Lodi. So what do you think the attraction is to the fruit out here? What is it that you really love about most, you know, especially the Zinfandel that's grown out here? Well, I think the one thing is Lodi has the largest collection of, you know, historic over 50 year old vineyards in the state, you know, and a lot of the vineyards are 
pretty large in scale. But, you know, I think the value you, the value quality ratio is as high as you, you can find in California where you have, you know, there are people you can buy for $1,200 a ton. You can buy 100-year-old Zinfandel that's yielding three and a half tons to the acre. In relation to something in Sonoma that's how much is the... 4,000. Yeah. You know, Napa's four to six, 7,000. I mean, it's, you know, you look at the bottle price multiplier and, you know, not that you're looking to make $12 bottles of wine, but in theory you could and make money. But if you want to make $20 bottles of wine and maybe give it a little more care and attention, you know, you can't really make $20 bottles of wine in Napa and Sonoma anymore. Right. Yeah. No, by no means can you. And it's crazy. Bart and I driving here. I love seeing like that one crush pad where you actually, you literally have railroads running right through the crush pad facility. I mean, one of them almost looked like it had a tunnel where it just sort of went right through the middle of the building. Yeah, um, that might have actually been a fruit processing plant, but it still the fact that, that in the day there were train cars used to come through here and probably take juice down to other uh, facilities, right? Well, and it was, you know, the, 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 the Southern Pacific hub, you know, to bring grapes to the East Coast. I mean, you know, Cesare Mondavi moved from Minnesota out here to be closer to the supply. Right. You know, during Prohibition. I mean, the the the, the railway dock down in downtown Lodi was the most happening place during Prohibition, you know, because <laughs> that's where all, you know, the refrigerated rail car to get grapes back. I mean, people soon realized if you could control the quality, you could get a lot better prices on the East Coast for your grapes for home winemakers. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I have an old post car that's um, uh, train cars full of grapes. I'll have to yeah, show no, it to you. Maybe you've seen it before. It's, no, it's pretty it, amazing. I mean, it was a really exciting time. I mean, there was just, you know, it was kind of prohibition in Lodi was kind of like the gold rush for growers, right. you know, and just grape brokers. I mean, you, there was money to be made and, you know, people were, you know, needing alcohol. So, you know, my experience with Lodi first was when I worked at Kenwood. And so I would say it was the late 80s, early 90s that we started doing a Lodi Old Vine Zin um, from a couple of vineyards out here that you're familiar with. Right. Um, I, I mean, to me, that was a kind of a big deal because there were there weren't a lot of at least not in Sonoma County, there weren't a lot of producers, if any, making a Lodi Zin right. um, and designating it. Um, and but, but when would you say kind of the change of Lodi fruit from being just a bulk um, product to fine wine, um, when do you think that started happening? Well, and, I, th and I think that's a Robert Mondavi, you know, coming back here, buying Woodbridge and, you know, his big thing with Lodi was, you know, all the wines were treated in French oak. You know, it was a, he had a 225, 228 barrel program for all the Lodi wines. And I think that's what really changed, you know, Lodi is that someone was actually making wine and aging it in a traditional style that had not been done. You know, think they were still aging in concrete or redwood tanks or stainless steel with, you know, and he basically said, no, like I'm going to, you know, we're going to use the old barrels from our Mondavi properties and we're going to age everything in, in Oak. And then they were also doing it in a, in a, in a cork finish for sure. And they were doing it variety. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. No, yeah. it's, you know, he, he's definitely credited to, you know, bringing, I mean, you talk to growers and, you know, they kind of, the, the, their attitude of the longing for, you know, Robert Mondavi, he took them to Italy. He took them to, 
Australia, you know, he brought them up. He gave them jackets. They got <laughs> bonuses. I mean, yeah. you know, it was they were treated like they were family, you yeah. know, and it, it worked well for, you know, on both sides. And I mean, I think, you know, he was someone who, you know, had the name and reputation where, you know, he brought firepower to the to the situation. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the first wine you're pouring for us here is the 2017 Kirschman Shannon, right? Yeah, it's not labeled Kirschman. It's just labeled Lodi, but it's 100% from the Kirschman Vineyard. Okay. Um, but, and in the past, though, you have labeled it as? I, I did put Kirschman on the label where it says Sandlands. Just, right. I always thought that was something I wanted to do. And right. that was kind of the first vintage, you know, off the vineyard. So it was kind of like an inaugural release. Right. Okay. You know? So uh, I didn't bottle any on its own in 2016. Okay. So it all went into my California Shannon, which is a blend of the Buddha's Vineyard and Kirschman. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. And then, so can you maybe talk a little bit about how you came apart, came upon purchasing Kirschman and then also Shannon Blanc, um, why you chose Shannon Blanc. I mean, I, I think I know a little bit of this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, but I'd like you to talk about it. So Kirschman Vineyard, uh, is a vineyard that's on the Eastern side of the McCallum river AVA is planted in 1915 and Turley in 2009 started working with a neighbor's vineyard, a guy named Ross Schmid. It's a vineyard Turley still buys today. And when we bought that first vintage from Rashmid, I couldn't believe the wine. I mean, it was this beautiful, haunting red fruit, you know, almost a cross between Burgundy and Barolo, you know, with this structure and rose petal and this like fine, strong tannin. And I really just kind of fell in love with this part of uh, Eastern Lodi. And so we started fine tuning the vineyard. And w one of the neighbors who owned a vineyard two parcels away and another she her family owned a lot of vineyards holly lasky she was born holly kirschman she was walking her dog through and allegedly she ran into ross and was like what's going on with this vineyard it looks so great she's like oh well there's this guy who's kind of we're selling the fruit too and he's having a sucker differently and and she noticed and it was actually marcus bokish and i were talking and he set up a meeting you guys met marcus today yeah, yeah. so uh <clears throat> he set up a meeting with holly and we, you know, just kind of met and chatted about, you know, and I kind of said, well, one day I'd love to buy your vineyard. And then she's like, well, let's have another meeting. And we kind of chatted and chatted. And I had, you know, been looking for property for about six years at that point, seriously. And uh, I kind of knew what I could afford. And I basically said, well, this is what I can afford. And she's like, well, I just don't think that works for me. And I said, okay. You know, and I kind of, I lined it out why... I, you know, this is how, and I said, look, I don't want to agree to a price that I will have to call you in a year and a half and say, sorry, I can't pay you. I had a bad harvest. And it was, we kind of parted ways and it was, you know, no hard feelings. And the next morning I was driving to work and she called me at like, you know, seven in the morning and she's like, this is Holly. And I'm like, Hey, how are you? And she goes, you know, uh, when I drove away last night, you know, and you know where Marcus lives and yep. she lives. So, you know, it's two blocks away. She said, when I drove away and I drove by the vineyard, she's like, I knew in my heart that my grandfather, my brother and my dad would want you to own the vineyard. So if your offer still stands, I'd like to sell it to you. And I mean, I, you know, I got kind of, you know, you choked up, you know, I was having a hard yeah. time. And I said, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. I mean, I was, you know, it's kind of like, of course, you know, and then, you know, I hang up the phone and I'm like, huh. Oh. 
I better call my wife, <laughs> you know, ask her, uh, you know, we didn't own a house at that point. My wife and I, you know, we had kind of the savings. Right. And it's like, oh, we're going to buy our first house. I'm like, no, no, we're going to buy a vineyard in Lodi. Wow. And uh, my wife's in the wine industry, too. And she, you know, she knows my uh, afflictions and my obsessiveness about things. And she knows that I want to jump into something that, you know, I didn't really see a future in. Interesting, yeah, in that, in that something. Well, and that's funny when people say maybe you should sleep on it. It seems like, the, I mean, she didn't even get to sleep on it. It was just to drive home, and then she thought, well, I better not wake him in case he's asleep. So but she was right. just yeah, ready Yeah, I to think go. she, you know, I think she really did kind of sleep on it, though. Like, she had this emotional, you know, feeling. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think I told you she's a retired school teacher, and she's been building schools in Peru, you know, with the money. So she actually carried the note, and I pay her directly. We didn't use a bank. Uh, that's awesome. So it's just a really neat, you know, situation. Well, the fact that it was in her family and she knows that you're going to be a good steward of the land. You weren't just going to come in and bulldoze and, and put up a big house or something. And well, and she still lives, you know, we saw where, I mean, she lives kitty corner, you yeah. know, to where the vineyard is. Her daughter lives there. She owns, you know, another property, you know, so her family's been out here a long time and yeah, no, she's a lovely woman. Yeah. And you know, I mean, a, a, a lot of the work that you guys are doing with the historic vineyard society comes into play here and that you know you're doing the right thing with the piece of property and um it's her family's multi-generational property and you want it to go to good stewards and um not well, just one of those wineries where it ends in a vowel well and you know? and i mean you get that feeling from tegan as we're driving around this afternoon that he knows every single person where they live their house their <laughs> their cousins where they live i mean you can tell he's spent a little time getting to know the people around here and i think that's probably gone um um gone a long way for people um, um warming up to you, you there we the, go okay yeah so i mean it you know the the interesting thing is that you know one of the reasons she was willing to sell the vineyard you know and this is just the changing of times the winery she was selling it to they sent her a contract and it was the first time ever they wanted her to pay for the trucking you uh, know and they're bringing the grapes up to napa and she goes jesus i was barely making money to begin with and she's like i just don't want to deal with the trucking you know and she's just like it's just she's like it's not what i want to be spending my time and when they dealt with the truck you know, so, you know it's something that's that simple right you know that can really just kind of get people to go you know what it's not for me anymore yeah yeah, yeah. so can you uh, maybe give us a little overview of the difference between east side west side here in loda so east side west side and i think the first way to start is the first sub ava of Lodi was the mccallamy river ava and that i think is the one you're referring to and that basically starts at highway five and goes to highway 88 almost to highway 88 so it basically goes west to east and the east of highway 99 is considered to be historically eastern lodi and it was there where victor is you know founded most of lodi was founded by germans the the whole Wichter, you know, area was founded by Russian Germans, primarily from Odessa, Russia. Uh, they were farmers there, actually grape growers, and they moved out here right before World War One. You know, it's primarily when most of them moved out to, and most of them came through the Dakotas originally. But so Eastern Lodi is closer to the foothills, and the the whole of the soil series in the McCallum River AVA is classified as Tokay Fine Sandy Loams, and 
the reason Tokay's in the name is that it was in these soils that the flame Tokay would get its beautiful pink glow, you know, and before, you know, flame seedless, flame Tokay is still the best tasting table grape. It really is. It's just, absolutely. It's just, it has a seed. And if you want to know where the downfall of like the American public started, it's when they went to, you know, (laughs) uh, flame seedless because we're going to, you know, who cares about flavor and quality? We don't have to spit out a seed, right? you know, and it's such an American thing because when I worked in France, uh, I remember the first time I went in, you know, the Rhone, I went and ordered a pizza. You know, I ordered olives on the pizza and, you know, almost broke my teeth oh, yeah. because th- <laughs> when you order olives, of course, it has a pit in it. You know, they don't you think of like olives in America and it's like, yeah. And I remember telling someone, I'm like, there was a pit in the olive. They're like, of course, it's an olive, you know, and uh, I always think about that with with flame uh, tokay. But so it was in these soils that it got this perfect, beautiful, you know, and you made more money selling uh uh, flame tokay than than wine grapes all day long wow. back then, and you can read old viticultural articles from pre nineteen hundred, you know, around that time where they were doing the most intense leaf pulling and shoot thinning for flame tokay because they were really focusing to not get sunburn and to get this beautiful glow. I mean, all the reasons people talk about doing things for wine grapes now, but they were doing it for flame tokay a hundred and twenty years ago, right? Which is just kind of fascinating. So. That's where the, why they named the soil series, you know, <clears throat> what it is. And on the east side, the soils are a lot sandier. So right behind the house, uh, one of the old guard families who owns it, he claims that one time they came and opened a fire hydrant in a pit and uh, a fire hose and it wouldn't puddle up. You know, it drains so well. He said it's, you know, there's wow. certain pockets that they call sugar sand, you know, which would just keep draining and draining and draining and wouldn't puddle up. Hmm. Uh, so there's some really deep sands. There's also chalk lenses out here, where, you know, limestone lenses and in, in Lodi, which people don't believe, you know, but there are photos of it. It's, it's real. And I think a friend of mine who makes wine in Rioja, he came out here the first time and go, wow, there's a lot of chalk in these soils. Cause late in the summer, I mean, the soils are white. When I, when I first bought the vineyard, I sent photos back to, Larry Turley and Aaron Jordan, who was my boss at the time, I said, look at this, you know, this is, and Larry said, well, what did they just put on the ground? You know, he thought they'd put out some fertilizer and right. I'm like, no, it's just white. You know, it's kind of that reflective, uh, quartz and granite, you know, and hot, dry sun. It looks white. You yeah. Know, it kind of looks like the moonscape. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So, um, and so now we're tasting the Amador 2017 Amador Sandlands. Yep. Um, can you talk a little bit about where this vineyard is from? We'll come back to Lodi. So this vineyard is, uh, it was planned in 1979 on the, the Story Vineyard, a vineyard that Turley uh, purchases Zinfandel from. So I started going up there in 07 and buying Zinfandel from this vineyard. And I always was fascinated by these. They had two little blocks of Chenin Blanc. And I thought, wow, it's like, really you know fascinating and the soils are quartz and granite and volcanics you know they're iron rich soils and i'm like i'm really impressed with it i just like it's so warm you know i'm just i don't think Chenin blanc would do well and then i went and worked in south africa and in the swartland and you look at the soils and the temperature and Chenin just flourishes there and so i came back and i kind of begged to buy the fr- i'd asked to buy the fruit a couple years before and uh it was being used by the winery and then they'd have excess sometimes and 
they finally agreed that I could buy the fruit. And the, the winemaker at the time who was associated with the winery said, let me give you a little bit of advice. He's like, you got to pick that Shannon over 27 sugar because under 27, it tastes all minerally, <laughs> you know? And he was trying to do me a solid, you know, but, and I remember thinking, oh Jesus, it still tastes minerally at 26 and a half, right. you know, <laughs> that it, you know, it's still, you know, it's resisting to just be this flamboyant, fruity, white, wine grape you know even at really high sugars yeah so the first year i it was 11 which was a very low yielding year for chenin blanc and uh i got 1.1 tons off the acre and a half and so i made a little over two barrels in the first year and i just loved the wine you know i picked it at the first year at like 20.8 bricks and was just amazed that if you would have told me five years before that you could make white wine picking at 20 bricks that wouldn't taste anemic and hard and, you know, underripe green wine, I wouldn't believe you. Yeah. And, you know, it's barrel fermented and used burgundy barrels. And then it, the one thing I do differently is I age it for a long time on its lees without any stirring or racking. How long? Uh, about 15 to 16 months. Okay. And that's, I don't filter the wines and I feel like to, you know, for them to drop clear, you know, it's kind of the John Kongsgaard original unfiltered Chardonnay method. Yeah. You know, you had basically, you know, it's time. You just need to give them time and they'll kind of settle out on their own. And sometimes they scare you when you taste them or smell them and uh, no, haven't I mean, gone through any weird. Not really. No. You know, I, I kind of have my own method of white wine fermenting. I, you know, I do what I call bucket overs, you know, where I'll take a siphon hose and like mid ferment take a couple buckets of fermenting juice out and it's kind of like a pump over in, in mm -hmm. the barrel and anytime that the wine's kind of going through something i do a couple of those and it's you know that it's revving again and it's just smelling beautifully this you know? wine's amazing i love that it has acid but at yep. the same time it's somehow the wine is then getting sucked back into my gums or something it's this weird feeling that uh that I, it's not normal well, well I, I, it makes me salivate but it's but then all of a sudden it's like a sponge where you squeeze the sponge and then all of a sudden the sponge sucks, sucks everything yeah. back up into yeah. it but I mean, it's in, you know, it's pure granite and, you know, I think the wine, you know, it's got structure too, you know, and density and, you know, it's dry farmed, you know, it's, it's a head trained dry farmed own rooted Shenan vineyard and it's kind of, you know, checks all the boxes of, you know, hipster cred, but it's also, there's a qualitative, you know, element to growing grapes that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so, um, as far as some of the winemaking, do you do any skin contact on this? Are you a cultured yeast guy or a un, un It's all, all native yeast. Everything at Turley's native yeast. Yep. Everything I do is native. Uh, I do destem the Shannon. Mm -hmm. I've always destemmed the Shannon. I, I look at my kind of philosophy on Shannon Blanc is that, you know, you always think you're kind of rocks and gravel and liquid rocks. And I think what I want is to build a to barrel ferment to age in barrel. You need a pretty sturdy wine. So I want to kind of get some phenolics out of the juice by destemming, you know, and I don't want a skin fermented flavor, but I want phenolics. And then I, th I think of the barrel as like those little rock polishers we had as a kid, you know, where you put rocks in and you tumble. The density of the rock's still the same, but the rough edges are gone, you know, on the rock. When you look at the rock, you've got this beautiful polished rock, but it, it's not like it took all the material off. Right. It just polished it. And I kind of feel like barrel fermentation to phenolic white wine really does a good job at 
doing that. And then you, what, knowing that you're going the distance on a long time in barrel, you can, you know, make a beefy structured wine. If you're going to bottle after two months in stainless, it would still be pretty phenolic, yeah. you know, and raw. Yeah. Right. And it wouldn't really, you know, become what you want it to become in bottle. And, and are these, uh, ML, uh, they all they, go through malactic. They do. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I, my Shannon this year went through ML spontaneously. It wasn't something I'd planned on. Right. Um, uh, last year, same thing. Part of it went through and I have to say it was something that I was always was worried about it going right. to ML, but now I'm starting to come around. And when you pick them at high enough acids, right. Um, it, they kind of meld together really nicely. Well, and I, and I think add some complexity. To well, it. here's my thing. It's we're making Mediterranean white wines, you know, and, and if you're making white wine in the Mediterranean, you know, it's not this cold. First of all, it's not a huge high acid grape, what, no matter what it is, you know, right. compared to continental climates and regions. But then you also have cellars in the Mediterranean climate. I mean, the grapes and the wines kind of naturally want to go through malactic, yeah. you know, and I kind of feel like, look, there's plenty of amazing Loire Shannon. I want to make something that's Californian, you know, and that has, you know, Shannon's all about texture, whether it's a super high acid Loire Shannon that, you know, has 14 grams residual sugar, but high acid, you get this texture from the sugar, you know, and that's what people are looking for. And, you know, for me, Shannon really is a great vehicle to transmit the California sunshine. You know, I think like mm -hmm. Vermentino does that, you know, and Shannon Blanc, where it just, it kind of, they're sun-kissed wines, you know, they're not yeah. cooked, but they're, you know, they don't seem like they were grown in a wet, rainy place. You know, right. they were grown in a place that, you know, and, yeah. you know, in 1990, yeah. the most planted white grape in load wine grape was Chenin Blanc yeah. and night in Napa it was Chenin Blanc. I mean, there's a history in California of it doing extremely, extremely well. And, you know, Mondavi bought a lot of Chenin Blanc from growers out here. I mean, the vineyard next to Dogtown, not the Cabernet, but the other vineyard, that was all Chenin Blanc that went to Mondavi. Right. And, um, you know, the growers out here, the old timers called it shitty Blanc. Yeah. And it was because when they furrow irrigated, uh, you know, you would get a lot of rot. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's another fascinating thing. Even Zinfandel, when it was furrow irrigated instead of drip, yields were lower on Zinfandel under furrow. People think of furrows as being this, like, to get these massive crops. But the old timer said, look, with a furrow, if you overdid it, you could lose your crop, you know, because you can't get rid of the water. Right. So if you furrowed too late and you blew up Zinfandel and you got bunch rot, you've, we've all seen Zinfandel that starts to go with bunch rot, yep. you know, and it, with furrow irrigating, all the old timers say, if you overdid it, you'd lose it, you know, and it would just start to rot on the vine. Right. So you basically, when drip irrigation came, they could give more water to actually grow a crop where I think furrow was more of maintaining the vines health and integrity right. in the original days, you know, but that's kind of one of the more fascinating things. And it was the same thing with Shannon to, you know, to to furrow irrigate gate Shannon back in the day, you had to go really lightly, but then the crops would be lower than they wanted. So it's always this kind of trying to push the boundaries of crop and, you know, health of health of the product. Yeah. Yeah. So we are sitting at your, let's say dining room table. Yes. In, uh, in your house. Yes. And I can literally see out the window. Yes. Another spot that you have purchased the yes. uh, the meat processing plant. Yep. East side meats. East side meats. Yep. So what's the plan going forward? Well, the plan is I've always loved it. It's a 
1940. It was put there in 1948. It's an old military Quonset hut. And it from 1948 till I think 2007, it was known as Eastside Meats. It was a custom processor. They had 11 full-time employees, you know, and they would break down animals. They would, they had a huge smoker and they would, they had a big freezer where people could store their meats. Um, and it's exactly a mile. It's in kind of the center of Victor, the little main street. Our vineyard's exactly a mile down the road. And I always looked at it and go, that would just be such a fun place to make wine, you know, to drive the tractor from the vineyard down yeah. the road. And again, you know, the sign out front, you know, says custom processing. And I just, my dad and I, we rebuilt the roof on the back of the lean-to. You know, we were up, t there were five roofs on the back of that lean-to. <laughs> you know, there were hot mops and they just kept putting, you know, it failed and they just kept putting another one on top. And I mean, my dad and I were working, you know, and of course, you know, it was white guys roofing. So we're working like at the hottest part of the day on the roof, just everything you're not supposed Shirtless. to do. Yeah. And, you know, from the roof, I just kind of would sit there and stretch and look over and be like, look, there's East Side Meats. And I'm like, just so cool to be able to see it. And, you know, I like this little kind of triangle with, you know, the little farmhouse and East Side Meats in the vineyard. And, you know, yeah. I kind of you know, dream of a day, you know, we can have, you know, interns come and stay out here and, you know, yeah. get, bring in the Europeans. They can get beat up at the no place bar <laughs> yep. and, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, you bring Australians out here and I mean, everyone that's come out here from the Brasa is like, this is the Brasa, you know, this is, yeah. it's all this old German stock and like, you know, just kind of, there's no bullshit to it. It's just, it is what it is. And, you know, they grow grapes and, you know, make wine and, right. You know, what I want to do is, you know, it must have been prohibition, but there's this there's this lost time of artisan winemaking out in this part of California. Yes. You know, where Napa, Sonoma, even Mendocino, people had small pre-prohibition cellars and people made their own wine by hand. And that really never happened here. When they really got going out here, it was co-ops. You know, they kind of jumped right into the co-op system. And then, you know, during Prohibition, a lot of growers did really well. And then post-Prohibition, it was back to co-ops and larger wineries. And, you know, it's just, it's it's different. I mean, again, if you look at South Australia, which is one of the places I look to for inspiration, because, again, it's just people out there physically making wine. You know, it's not, I mean, of course you have the big factories next door, but the best wines are no, no tricks, you know, just people out there pitchforking, you know, high end Syrah into, you know, mm -hmm. fermenters and pressing and from great old vine vineyards. And that's something I want to have happen out here. And it's, you know, a lot of the bigger producers, you know, they make really great wine and they make it in volume and they make a great product that, you know, people can enjoy throughout the world. And, uh, I just think it can be taken to the next level. And I think by the way to do that is by doing it a little smaller and having people working. And, you know, we all know this people working physically cleaning the floors, doing yeah. pump overs and punch outs who love wine, yeah. who wake up in the morning and say, I want to go drink more wine. I want to go to Alsace and learn about wine there. Yeah. I want to go here. And it's like, and they're doing these menial tasks because they like they're, 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 their being is telling them they need to physically be doing this. And that I think is something where I, I think some of the locals out here look at me and they say, geez, you're doing it the wrong way. You know, I replanted an acre at Kirschenman that was Pinot Gris and I'm going to plant Shannon. And, you know, the guy said, you know, you can get 
the vines grafted. You know, I planted rootstock. He's like, you, you know, you're doing it the old way. Like, you know, we worked really hard not to do that anymore. And I said, yeah, but I believe, you know, historically, like the best old vineyards are, you know, field grafted, you know, and you go to places like Northern Spain and Portugal and they're like, yeah, the bench grafts after 20 years really start to struggle. Yeah. Uh, Do you think the some of the people that live in this area are a little bit weary of someone like you with your name and your connections coming in and buying a house and have a production facility? They and do I you mean, really care? Or is it or is it <laughs> exciting to some people where they go, "Hey, it's nice to get a little cred for what we've been doing for decades." I think it's uh I think it's ex- it, it's exciting I think to some people, but I also think a lot of people don't really care. Yeah. You know, I think people, you know, you know, what I've always said is like anyone could have bought that vineyard. Anyone could have bought this house. Anyone could have bought East side meats. Like I, I believe there's value in it that I, I think that, you know, sometimes it's the things that are close to us, that traditions from our family that we don't see as special anymore you know and it's hard because you're kind of so immersed in it and it's like you know people are like oh i remember the meat market i had to work there from when i was 15 to 16 and you know it was horrible you know and it's like there's something where for me those things have always really attracted me uh you know i i love projects you know anything that's kind of old and i think i got that from you know my father drove a cement truck his whole life but he also restored victorians on nights and weekends in napa you know, when everyone kind of laughed at him and said, you know, this is 70s and 80s, like, you just buy a new track house. And my dad's like, yeah, but like, have you seen the door? It's like solid oak. And I mean, we'd go and, you know, my dad in his garage still has like a dozen old solid oak Victorian doors that people were throwing away because, you know, they were getting them at Yardbirds, the Home Depot of the yeah, time. Yeah. They got some just plastic, you know, metal front door. And my dad goes, well, geez, they're throwing out that great oak door. Uh, so that's kind of... I've always think that I find value and I think I under luckily with my day job, I think I get to, uh, I have a good judge of what I do think quality is. You know, when we work with 50 vineyards and have a hundred lots, when you taste through wines, I mean, certain things stick out good and bad, you know, anyone can do it. You just kind of, you can race through tasting and you're like, wow, that's really cool. Or, Whoa, that's a dud. And I mean, it's just, it's not, it's just that repetition that, it's very easy to be like, wow, that's good. And that's interesting. That's, you know, more than just like, you know, pet nat interesting. That's like qualitatively interesting. But to answer your question, I, I really don't know. I do care. I don't, I don't want to be in a place where I'm not wanted to be honest. And I mean, most of the neighbors have been, you know, uber interested, you know, when I was working on the East side meats building, a lot of old timers stopped by and said, Oh, I worked here. You know, people, you know, I worked here. What are you doing with it? And it's like, it just, you know, it's kind of sad. It was basically like a guy had it as like his own mini junkyard, had like 40 kind of old cars there that he was going to fix that he never really did. Uh, But yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, I, I, you know, the, the vineyard's an interesting thing because, you know, I know Kershaman has, you know, brought, you know, a bit of, street cred to this part of Lodi, you know, I mean, even absolutely uh, Kevin Phillips, who, you know, is one of the best farmers I know his family just recently sold seven deadly Zins, but he was at, uh, was he at, uh, Manresa? Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, 
the whole freaking list. He's like, only one Lodi wine. Yeah. You know, he sent me the f- picture and he's like, congratulations, that's great for Lodi. And it was the Turley Kirschman, you know? And I mean, it's just kind of cool that he's out there, you know, dining with a group of people and they look on the whole list and he's like, oh, only one. And then he's like, yeah, that's awesome. You know, he's like, congratulations, like a great list and there's a Lodi wine. Right. Yeah. You know, which 10 years ago on the best restaurant list, there weren't Lodi right. wines. Right. Yeah. So... Well, he just seems from driving around today when you were telling us, oh, this is where Mandavi had set up shop and this is where the Gallows have these vineyards that just wasn't sure if there was an attitude of some people that lived here that, you know, they're kind of getting, they're being used by the large corporations to just do their labor and then they're making all the money somewhere else. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's big ag, you know what I mean? Yeah. So a lot of it, you know, people out here, I mean, a lot of the large families, they're, you know, and I've gotten in a lot of trouble because Lodi does have the best grape growers in America. They keep their vineyards very healthy. They're very practical. I mean, I think there's a lot of that German, you know, upbringing that everything's neat and tidy. You know, I'm Italian. We're romantics. We have seven broken tractors that we're going to fix that our grandfather drove, you know, and they're in our yard. And, you know, it's you look historically in, you know, Napa, Sonoma, and, you know, you look at you know, Jack S Hill that was planted by an Italian. Like that's not a practical thing to do. You know, Italians and practicality weren't, you know, and so looking at these neat, you know, they're just practical farmers. And one of the farmers originally told me, he's like, look, you know, you know, to be a true farmer, like you can't really be sentimental, you know, about these things. Hmm. You know what I mean? That's where, and that's where I think wine isn't just farming. I mean, everyone likes to say that, but like wine is different because, that's what I was going to say. I mean, when you talk about not being sentimental about wine, that's... But it's not sentimental about farming. Right. You know, so they are basically saying, look, if, if your grandfather planted this vineyard and you're losing $2,000 a year, rip it out yeah. and replant right. it. Right. It's great that your grandfather planted it, but guess what? If you keep doing that, you're going to end up losing the whole farm over yeah. being sentimental where... If you're making wine, you can take, you can lose 2000 but then when you on the farming, but when you sell the wine, you can make 50,000, you know, so there's ways of making wine that can make money, even if the vineyard operation in theory didn't make money. And that's the big difference because most people who are just farmers just see that first process, Yeah. you know, of what they spend on their inputs and what they sell that for. Right. You didn't quite finish that statement because I think it was that you think that people here are some of the best grape growers in California, but probably not some of the best wine makers in California. Well, well, and I even would say not there. It's not wine making. It's that wine growing. It's that, you know, attachment to the final process. And it's not saying like, Oh, we'll fix it in the winery. Cause a, a great winemaker will say, don't worry about it. We'll fix it in the winery. Right. That's what a great winemaker can do. But when you're looking at it and saying, look, I want out there, like, you know, I don't want to use that section. Let's pick it separately. Let's do this. Let's, you know, let's prune, you know, shoot thin better. I mean, when you're doing everything not to, when you're just a farmer, you're basically paid by the ton, you know? And so that's the bottom line. And it's great if you want to drop fruit and do this and that. But at the end of the day, if the winery doesn't care and you're not making more money, it's not a really intelligent, you know, practice, you know, but if you're part of that, what I call wine growing where you're going to benefit in the long run because you have better grapes, you know, where a grower doesn't really directly benefit from having 
better grapes when they're selling to large corporate wineries. And what do you think the time frame is on making that an actual production facility where you'd be putting out first bottle? I'm hoping maybe in two years, within the next two years, you know, and I kind of look at, you know, I'm not looking at leaving my day job anytime soon at Turley. So I've thought maybe what I can do is I would maybe still kind of ferment wines at Turley and then transfer age and bottle out here. Yeah. You know, just cause I'm, you know, I can, I don't know. It's still kind of, you know, I'm still kind of winging it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and that's, and, and that's, uh, you know, a good way to kind of, take it because you don't know what your future crops are going to be like and we don't know what the wine market's going to be like right. and um so you have to you have to be able to adjust right right and and you know just to go back a little bit i want to talk about your comment about you know in the cellar i mean i think th- there's something to be said about once the grapes are in the winery the people making the wine having them be wine lovers i, I agree with you and and being into wine because um, that's where the subtleties are either saved or lost right. in the winery. And so um, I, I, I just wanted to comment that I really like that. that well, and I, I think about that a lot because I, you know, when people are always asking, you know, what's winemaking? Is it an art? Is it a science? Is it a craft? And I, my answer is I don't know. I just know it's, you know, you can give someone the exact same recipe and have them do it like 10,000 times. And at the end of that 10,000, you have 10 people, how diverse the end product will be. Right. And you could ask them, you're like, well, what'd you do differently? And like, nothing. Yeah. Like, well, what'd you do differently? Nothing. I, I followed the recipe. Right. But over time, like the human being decides not even shortcuts, but just different ways to do things, even though they're reading the recipe the same way. Right. You know, and... uh you know, what's the, there's this old, this book from the fifties on, you know, Italian cooking. And it was basically the, I'm trying to think what the author's name was, but she basically recorded what they called pre-industrial cooking, you know, and it was before people used proper measuring cups. And I mean, it was, Mm. how do you cook? And I think a lot of winemaking's like that. And I think that's what was lost in prohibition was, you know, in theory, we lost, you know, if you look at when the wine industry really started get going again you know it was 50 60 years after prohibition started or you know and that's what three generations of seller hands to teach the next generation and you know so we lost all this institutional knowledge of those things you know and so we kind of had to start again you know at a time you know we basically started you know Stony Hill started in 53, but, you know, Mondavi, the next Napa winery started in 66. So from 1919, which I think the last wineries being, you know, built were before 1919 because people kind of knew Prohibition was coming. Right. So let's say 1915 to 1953, there are no wineries built in Napa Valley. And then from 1953, after Stony Hill was built, it took another 13 years till (laughs) another winery was built. (laughs) I mean, so now you're at 1915 to 1966, you know, you have that, uh, you know, 51 years with only two wineries being built in Napa Valley. Oh. Yeah. And you just, you start to think of how that affected, you know, the, 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 the craft of winemaking. Right. I mean, and you know, like, you know, working with, you know, 
old seller guys who have worked for a long time and the way they teach you how to walk out a hose or how do you put a bucket back in a barrel, you know, that's in a stack, you know, and siphon it up and put, you know, just all those tricks that people learned, you know, that was more or less lost for 50 plus years in Napa and the rest of California. And I think those are the things that I think everyone's finally realizing that the wine industry and a lot of things in the world are missing, you know, that real human connection of people crafting things right you have to want to be in the winery and work in the winery you know it's not about walking around the cellar with a glass just tasting things you know well i wish that's what it was about bart (laughs) i know uh, that's what a lot of people think it's about until you get them in and i remember working in tasting room you always think i want to work for a winery and then you're working in the tasting room you think this is great man i just pouring wine and drinking wine all day you know what, I really want to make wine. And then you get out into the cellar and get out into the vineyard and go, wait a minute, this is not exactly what I thought it was going to be like. Yep. It's farming. Yep. Um, and, and to what you said about, you know, everyone doing things differently. I it, Working in the tasting room, someone would come in and say, I'd say, oh, you got to try this Zen. They'd say, oh, I don't like Zinfandel. I said, so you've tried every fucking Zen yep. made up and down in California. Right. And I said, and not only that, you can give the same cluster or, or an acre to 10 different winemakers. They're going to come back with 10 completely different wines. Um, so I don't know how you can make a blanket statement like that. Or they say, I don't like Zinfandel. And you're like, you're like, come on. You're like I only drink red wines. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, this one is red. <laughs> right. Imagine that. Yeah. Right. So well, what about this red wine here that you just poured us? So this is, uh, I haven't released this yet. So this is my 2017 Sandlands Contra Costa County Red Table Wine. Uh, this is a vineyard that I made wine from the first year I released wine, 2010. And it's a, a 1922 head train dry farm vineyard. There's three sections of the vineyard. There's Carignan, there's Mataro, and Zinfandel. And this is a blend of 65% of the Carignan and 35% of the Mataro. And to me, this is, you know, Contra Costa red table wine. It's, you know, really high in acid naturally. It's all, this is all whole cluster fermented, but I think old vines like soak that up mm-hmm. where with some younger vines or higher pH wines that are whole cluster, the whole cluster dominates mm-hmm. and you get all those whole cluster aromatics where with the old low pH wines, I mean, they just vines that the, the whole cluster just isn't, you know, jumping out of the glass. There's more complexity, I think to the wine, but it yeah. doesn't always show up of that's whole cluster. And I, I even stopped, in my kind of when I make my offers and tell wine, I don't even tell people I do whole cluster anymore. Right. Because I mean, I don't think it's that important. Right. Like I do it because I know it makes the wine I want to make, but I don't want that to be a focus of the wine. Right. So is there going to be a offering coming across people's emails here anytime in the near future? Yeah, hopefully by probably the end of the month or okay. early February, we'll, we'll have an offering and I'm still, trying to decide if I have uh, 12 wines in 17. So I'm trying to decide if I do two offerings, which I th- I've been doing one offering for the last three years. And the first two years I did two offerings, a spring and a fall. But I think I need to go back to two offerings with the amount of certain wines I, I made. And, sure. you know, I made, uh, there's, there's three Chenin Blancs in 17. There's the Red Table wine, and then there's Mataro from this vineyard on its own, Mataro from the Ends vineyard. There's Trousseau. I made some Mission from the old Diva Ranch, the oldest producing 
vineyard in uh, North America. So 1854. I've never had that varietal before. Mission. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard about, about it. it. Yeah. I, I know that some people are getting into it, it a little bit more, but I've never tried it. And so I made 50 cases of that. I made a Rafosco oh. from St. Helena. Hmm. Uh, there's 50 cases of that. And then I made a Merlot from Coombsville. Cool. And I made a hmm. Chardonnay from Coombsville. And uh, I, I grew up out in Coombsville in Napa. Right. And the dirty, dark family secret that I sometimes tell people is that my mother doesn't like Chenin Blanc. So she's a Chardonnay <laughs> drinker. So I was lucky enough through my friend John Lockwood to get a half ton of the Haynes Vineyard, Haynes yeah. with an S Chardonnay. So it's the oldest Chardonnay in Coombsville. Right. It's planned 1966, St. George Dry Farm Chardonnay. Wow. Uh, Fela gets some of it. Uh, it was one of the original vineyards that John Kongsgaard used in the, in the uh, Newton Unfiltered. You know, he used Hyde. He used Hudson, he used uh, Haynes, and he used his family's judge vineyard for the original Newton unfiltered. Isn't there a little trousseau in that vineyard too? In which no in the in the Haynes vineyard? In the Hain vineyard. So there's oh, so gotcha. Turley gets the Hain vineyard, no S, uh-huh. and that's in St. Helena, and that's Zinfandel, uh, Petit Syrah, and Cabernet. Mm-hmm. And in the old Zinfandel patch, there is about eight to ten percent trousseau right right and then the haynes vineyard that's down in coombsville and eastern napa proper is chardonnay pinot and syrah uh and the pinot and chardonnay uh the first person who kind of made those wines uh well known was a guy named bill cadman who worked at uh mondavi for a long time he has a winery called tulake oh yeah and i've heard of tulake bill's wines in today's modern times is what he, I mean, he was basically 40 years before his time. He was using a basket press. He made wine in a small little outbuilding at his house. And he made, he made the more earthquake vineyard that Turley made for yeah. a long time. He made Amador County's in, in the seventies. I mean, he made some really cool wines, but he, he's, I want to say they've made his daughter, Bree, someone I grew up with is now making the wines with him. And I think they've made the Haynes Chardonnay for like 42 years, wow. you know, which is just kind of it's amazing. same small winery. And I mean, again, they're doing it by hand, you know, and he worked as a sales guy at Mondavi and, you know, after work and before work, he made wine out in Coombsville. What did you do? So you grew up in Napa? I did. Yep. And what did you do as a teenager for work? Were you uh, all involved in the wine industry? Not at all. Oh. I... Uh, as a teenager, I actually met the first job I ever had that I had to fill out a W-2 was actually sampling grapes out in Carneros. So a friend of mine's aunt had a vineyard and basically we'd go out on the weekends and, you know, early on Saturday and Sunday and we walked the rows and they just say, sample the Chardonnay. You know, they're selling to a sparkling producer and we just, you know, sample and leave bags at the end of the rows and big vineyards and just kind of <laughs> walk the rows and got paid, you know. 425 an hour right you know so they didn't so, want you to eat it they or taste it they just wanted you to collect it just to collect it and they'd huh. bring it to the lab you know and they were looking you know i think it was before atvs yeah the the yeah. sparkling you know uh producers just kind of want to like sample all the blocks we want to run the chemistry and see where we're at and you know if it's time to start picking and what are we going to pick next and kind of mm-hmm. laying out there you know i mean i think this modern thing of calling a grower and saying can you pick tomorrow morning is such a modern luxury you know it's like you look at years you know the warm years in europe like everyone's like well the wines are 16 and a half percent it's like why didn't they pick earlier it's like 
the way they usually pick is they pick a little bit every day for like a, a number of weeks. And when the heat comes, first people there aren't used to the heat, but then it's like you have to start picking it sometime. And there's like a regular schedule. They don't have the luxury of having 40 guys out and having it knocked out in two hours. Yeah. You know, right. right. I mean, that's, it really is a modern luxury that you get to. So I think even back in, you know, this would have been the late eighties or early nineties, you know, I think you probably had to call picks a week in advance. You know, there were, you just kind of talking and was it 20 or 22? And you're just like, Oh, we'll start picking, you know? And a lot of, times it was the the growers that and it's still that way out here you know they call the winery and say we're going to bring grapes in on tuesday they're in the range yeah you know i mean that was the interesting thing when i worked at kenwood and so that was the mid 80s through the late 90s is that um chewy ordaz who's the vineyard manager there he picked grapes for whatever we wanted picked so he had vineyards that we farmed that he picked grapes for right but if we wanted something picked and and the grower couldn't get to it we'd go out and chewy would pick it right. or the contract was stated that right. is that we would go out and do it and that allowed us to get grapes when we wanted right um and we didn't have to th- say let's start now or right. in cases of you know big vineyards what where you started so, right um so that was that was a unique thing at that point um, well and yeah i mean and, and, you know and we could get loads of you know 10 and 15 tons at a time um you know so yeah, no, where I worked in the Northern Rhone in Crow's Hermitage, you know, it was fascinating. We'd, you know, basically we started picking, you know, at what was like 11% potential and probably finished at 14% potential. So he was looking for an average, I guess. At the, I mean. well, well, and I think, yeah, you realize that you're kind of, but I mean, I, I, something I learned there, whether it was because of labor or not, the complexity you get when you're picking like one variety throughout a large area. I mean, we didn't make a lot of wine. We made 150 tons, you know, we, we crushed, but I mean, it was like, you know, we could do like eight tons a day, sometimes 10, the crew could pick. And so you just kind of, and then the layers of complexity you got from the first pick to the last was pretty amazing. And it's something with the next one, with the the Kirschenman out here that I try to do for Turley. I always try to do, you know, in, a normal year, I'll try to do three picks for Turley from the same vineyard, just a, mm. a little different ripeness levels. And then we don't always use all of them. Some of it goes into our old vines bottling. But it's just amazing to kind of see how that works. And of course, some years it's like when you want to do your first pick, you're like, actually, we need to pick it all, you know, and get it in right now. And like, I don't because the windows here and then if we we're going to pick next week, it's going to be. 98 degrees for a week I, I just want to get it in all in now right. so but the ideal is to you know and that's kind of you know the ideal of you know when I have east side meats it's you know and picking grapes you know I may even have a small intern crew and it's like let's go pick four tons a day right you know and bring it down the street and we right. start at you know you know the, the beauty is you know I I sold Duncan and Nathan of Arnott Roberts in 2012 a ton and I, you know, they picked it like 22 sugar, you know, and I begged them not to pick. And then I begged them not to do whole cluster. I love whole cluster. And their wine turned out like beautifully, you know, just a really amazing wine. So at least, you know, I know that that wine can be made and can still be beautiful at that kind of, you know, harvest date and that treatment of, right. you know, classical Burgundian whole cluster, you know, treatment. The wine can still be really beautiful. Yeah. You know, and that's why I love selling to guys like, you know, 
them and I, you know, have sold to other people who even wanted to always pick riper than I wanted. But I'm like, look, I want to, I'm being greedy here. Like I want to learn on other people's right. dollar. And, you know, I'm not the guy who thinks that everything I do is right. No matter what my wife says, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I do know that like, there's still a lot to learn. And I'm like, it's beauty to see, you know, you sell grapes to five people from your vineyard, you know, and, Turley would take it all, but I would like to see five expressions because for, you know, in 10 years, I get to try 50 different wines from my vineyard and look back at them and five years later and be like, wow, I really loved the one way this one aged. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't really love that. And I mean, you know, I think that's the fun part about winemaking is if you want to be a lifetime learner, it's the perfect you know, profession because you're never going to know everything. Right. You know, right. And you get a year to contemplate what you did. Well, so can you talk a little bit about that time in, uh, when you worked in Crow's Hermitage, where that was and what kind of your responsibilities were at the time? So I, uh, it was 2005. I left, uh, I tried to leave Turley. So I thought that I was leaving Turley and I, had worked at Turley for two years in the cellar and I really wanted to go learn whole cluster fermentation, you know, and the only person who was really doing it in a large scale that time was Aaron Jordan, you know, with his Fela wines and the Nyers wines before that. And, you know, I was working for Aaron. He was making his Fela wines at Turley. I was blown away by whole cluster and I wanted to go learn and, you know, to kind of figure out how to make whole cluster, uh, Syrah. So I went and worked at Alain Grayot. Uh, Larry Turley's wife, Suzanne Chambers, has sold those wines since her fir- his first vintage, 1985. Wow. And uh, it was, you know, Alain and Maxime, his son, who's a year older than I am. And then there's one cellar guy, you know, and it was the four of us. And just, wow. you know, again, it's just making wine. You know, Maxime and Alain would be out on the picks bringing in tractors of grapes. And, you know, we'd be doing pump overs and crushing and, you know, just... Just cellar work. Just cellar work. You yeah. Know, just making wine. And I, I was lucky enough. I got to stay through bottling and bottled the 14s. Yeah. Uh, or the 2004s. You know, and that was, you know, we bottled everything on a, you know, monoblock corker yeah. that he shared with the neighbor. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just, we, you know, kept bottling by hand and everything was laid in baskets and uh, then labeled mm-hmm. after the fact. Because, again, he sells a lot through distribution. Right. So to label when you bottle doesn't really make sense. Right, right. Uh, but, no, I mean, it was, you know, it was a life-changing experience. I lived in Torno and, you know, it's the only American there. So do you speak any French? I did a little bit, but my comprehension was pretty good. Yeah. You know, I could comprehend everything, but... I mean, it really, you know, it was work and I came home and like got ready for the next day of work and, uh, walked around a lot. You know, I went on walks every night and just kind of smiled to myself and, uh, you know, drank wine, but it was, you know, it was definitely, you know, I'd lived in New Zealand, but I mean, to be out of California where I'd been born and raised, you know, it was pretty, it was just, you know, and to have lunch with the family every day and kind of you know, learn just the proper etiquette for certain things. Right, and I yeah, love, yeah. you know, I lo- the, everyone's like, well, what'd you learn? I'm like, well, there's, you know, three things, you know, <clears throat> and, you know, of course, you know, I knew before you look someone in the eyes when you cheers them, but that's extremely important. The other thing was that you, it's disrespectful if someone serves you a salad to cut the, the salad. You're supposed to fold it. If you're cutting it, it's showing the the host that it wasn't 
prepared properly. And then the third thing I love that I really enjoyed is when the cheese plate comes around, you're allowed to pick three selections and you can take as much as you want from any three, but you can't go back. Like it's just, those are, it's just, if you want cheese, like you, there's, you only pick three, you can take half of one if you want it and take that and two others, but you don't go back and it's just, you know, I mean, I love little things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. You know, and I still cut my salad sometimes, but you know, I think about it a lot, you know, and kind of, uh, yeah, you know, you just fold your salad and eat it. So this is while you were working at Turley, you went, you went so, over to France. So, right. So I had, uh, I mean, the, the, the real story is a, an ex-girlfriend and I had broken up and I just thought, you know what, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to go work in Europe. Yeah. You know, I'd been at Turley and I said, you know what, I, I should just do it now. So I got the job and I, you know, was leaving and I went and helped, uh, Aaron Jordan pour at, uh, it was the first, I think it was the first Pinot days you know, down in, uh, San Francisco, mm-hmm. I went and helped him pour right before I was leaving. And we were driving back and he, he's like, so what, when are you coming back? He's like, when do you think you'll come back? And I'm like, I don't, what do you mean come back? He's like, well, uh, I wasn't planning on coming back. And he's like, huh? And he's like, well, what if I, what if I gave you my viticultural responsibilities? Would that be something you would come back for? And I was like, you know, I really hadn't thought of it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go work there and, you know, maybe stay four months and then come back and find some other job. And, and I was just like, yeah, sure. You know? And so, uh, it kind of changed my, you know, but when I was up the months before leaving, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving and I'm just going to, you know, go do this thing. Thank you for helping me get the job and to Suzanne and Larry. And, you know, that was, you know, almost 14 years ago. (laughs) So, uh, I came back and yeah, that's when I really started coming out to Lodi and Contra. I really started visiting, you know, Aaron was building a winery, you know, he had bought the property to build the Fela winery for himself. He was still involved with Nyers and he was just like, you know, I, I tell people, you know, Aaron gave me one directive when I came back and he just said, make the wines better. And, you know, and I was in every vineyard every week. That was kind of like, yeah, just you start going out and, you know, make the wines better. And, uh, that was it. You know, he never asked what I was doing. You know, he's just, you know, we were farming the vineyards in a better way. And, uh, you know, I think the wine started to be a little more fine tuned and he noticed that and just kept giving me more responsibility. So when's the first time you met Morgan Twain Peterson? So Morgan called me, I think it was around 2007 and I'm trying to think he called to ask if he could come taste at Turley and, uh, I said yes, and then he also called and said, maybe it was in the same conversation, that he wanted to sell Turley some grapes, you know, from Bedrock. And so I told Aaron, and Aaron and I drove out there, and we walked around, and, you know, things were still being kind of farmed in the old way. Mm-hmm. And we said, you know, there was it was still being pretty conventionally farmed and, you know, watered a decent amount. We just said, nah, you know, we'll check back. I think we're good right now on on grapes and then in 2012 you know morgan and i had developed a friendship and uh you know i brought him out to contra costa get some evangelo fruit the year before and he uh said we really love to get you grapes and i went out there clearly the farming had improved in that four or five years 
And I said, okay, well, you know, we'll take it if you farm our block organically. Hmm. And according to Morgan, you know, they were having dinner and Morgan kind of told Joel and Maddie and Joel's like, yeah, I don't think so. And Maddie's saying, cause I said, well, we'll pay the difference, you know, cause we were out there with Diane. She's like, well, it's going to probably be, you know, three, 400 extra dollars or $800 extra an acre to do the organics, you know, under vine. And I said, well, we'll pay it. Like we'll pay 300 extra dollars a ton or whatever it is. And allegedly it was Maddie who said, Joel to Joel, like someone's offering you to do an experiment and pay for it. You know, like you're doing it. Like, right, so, right, right. you know, and of course Morgan's like, well, if your block's doing it, like, why don't we have our block done that way as well? So, you know, and it was, uh, you know, we've been working with it ever since. Yeah. So we get five tons a year and most years we get five tons is in and, uh, yeah, it's been fun. You know, Morgan's been buying Kirschman for the same amount of time. So we've had, you know, seven vintages of each, each, each other's wines. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. I love this wine that we're drinking right I now. I say so the, uh, the aroma on this wine is I get like orange zest. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, I mean, amazing. so you can, uh, you know, imagine, you know, my frame of reference was Dogtown, which is a, still a beautiful wine but when we made that first wine from the schmeads and it had finished ml and it was we'd racked it and it was the first time i really tasted the finished wine i'm like i just my mind didn't go oh of course this is lodi's in Mm-mm. you know what i mean it just that wasn't where my mind went i'm like wow this i think this is i think this is special i think this is something that more modern wine drinkers wine lovers are gonna enjoy you know it's not heavy it's you know it's just it's different you know and I, I couldn't believe that you know it's like you know clearly people had been buying you know ravenswood bought this fruit for a while you know but mm-hmm. it was being picked into you know sets of doubles right. you know and in transferred and right. you know doing the double dump it was, it was and, being processed yeah. and you know it just it's it's super fun to be able to make a wine that one i you know have kind of studied zinfandel my whole professional life and then to kind of make one that you know, makes people kind of reconsider what they think about, you know, Lodi's in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, this is definitely one of them. It's definitely one of them. Beautiful. So Tegan, if, if people want to get a hold of your wines for Sandlands, it's, it's not necessarily a, a wine club. It's just, you put out, uh, do people have to shoot you an email and then get on a list yep. and then you so do an, they a, can, an offering? They can get on, uh, on my website, sandlandsvineyards.com. They can sign up for the mailing list and basically they'll get an offering. Uh, and what I usually do is I offer my wines for about a week to 10 days to, uh, past purchasers, you know, and I kind of, and then I let people know who've purchased in the past, like, I'm going to open it up to new customers who haven't purchased, who have shown interest, you know, in two days. So, you know, buy now or forever hold your peace. So that's kind of how I sell the wine direct. And then I have three distributors. So I work with uh, Revel in California. Mm-hmm. And then I also work with uh, Michael Skernick Wines out in New York. And then I work with a, a uh, <clears throat> small distributor in Colorado called Stelvio Wines, guy Craig Lewis, who... If you follow the the Instagram webs, he and Bobby Stuckey train together a lot. He's an old, okay. a young old professional cyclist who, after a pretty serious injury, got into wine. So he sells like the Kermit Lynch book in Colorado, and okay. uh, really amazing guy. And a couple of places that aren't bad to go visit, you know, well, New York and Colorado. Well, that 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 is one of those things that you know, you know, Aaron Jordan had given me a decent amount of advice, and one of the things he told me is 
don't sell wine when it's just you to places you don't want to go visit because you don't want people to, you know, you don't want to put off this or like, I really hate being here. I don't want to be here. And it's like, it's work. And he's like, look, if if that's your job, if it's a salesperson, but if you're a, you know, small producer and you can't go and see people and say, thank you for buying my wine, you, you shouldn't, you know, do it. So, I mean, my wife's family now lives in Colorado. So we go out about twice a year, you know, and I mean, the Colorado wine market is amazing right now. I mean, and it's all the wines we like to drink. It's the, you know, the, the 20 to like $30 wines are on, I mean, Denver's blown up, you know, it's just, you go there and you look at wine list. I'm like, I like to drink everything on this list. You know, they're not just like the cookie cutter grocery store wines. They're, you know, artisan. Thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah, Thoughtful wines. And and you look at, but even I was in New York uh, right before Christmas for one of my friend's birthdays. And, it's amazing how many like under $70 a bottle on restaurant wineless wines there are now. I mean, even when I was out two years ago, it kind of, you look at it and you feel horrible cause you're like, you know, you go to the top of the list to see what you can afford. Right. And then halfway down the list, I'm like, Oh, these wines are all like, you know, I mean, we had a Vermentino the first day I had lunch, you know, at, at Pascali Jones and it was a $50 on the list Vermentino that was just beautiful. And I mean, I know that's not cheap, but you know, it's, I feel like a couple of years ago, I mean, you couldn't find a wine under like a hundred dollars on restaurant list out there. Yeah. It's like that in Hawaii too. I think the last time I was there in Kapalua, I paid $70 for a bottle of King Estate Pinot Gris just right. because we wanted something to have with dinner. Yep. We didn't want to pay the corkage fee. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's neat to see because it was the first time. I mean, I try to go out to New York at least once a year and it's the first time I'm like, wow, the, I feel like, and it's not that the wine lists are all California now. It's just kind of, more interesting, thoughtful wines that are right. people can go and order a bottle of white and a bottle of red and not, you know, feel, you know, like their kids, you know, gonna go to junior college. college. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's cool because because of the internet and because of all these apps and whatnot, but there's so much information out there that people that are wine directors or wine buyers for restaurants, you don't just have to rely on a book that one of the reps drops off that you kind of peek through and look at prices that or go by wine enthusiast scores or Parker, all that kind of crap. But you can actually do research and find out. I mean, Alain Greyot, who you were talking about, I remember finding a wine that was from Morocco or something. Yeah, it yeah, was his Sirocco. Completely yeah. interesting yeah. kind of thing, but it was something I would, you know, unless I was just poking around on the internet, would have never found out about. Well, the, the internet and social media has, I mean, I don't know how you feel, Bart, but I mean, it is really what I do as a small producer, I don't think would have been possible without it, you know? And I mean, just the way you can sell wine, the way you can interact with your customers, you know, people can share experiences of a bottle they had somewhere. They loved it. Instant feedback. Uh, and then other people get to see it. You know, I, I always talk about, you know, you know, we're not the first people to do this small, you know, again, it's like, you know, the Bill Cadmans of the world who, you know, doesn't really have an internet pre- They have social media, you know, they have Instagram, his daughter has Instagram and, you know, it's a pretty fun thing to follow. But, uh, you know, and you think of Steve Edmonds, you know, right. I mean, Steve Edmonds is making these beautiful wines for the last 35 years. And, you know, all the wine geeks throughout the country who would have loved the wines, like it was hard for them to hear about them. Right. You know, now right. when we make, you know, or a friend makes a cool wine and people get on, you know, and it's, you know, part of it's, you know, you know, someone who's in the know, like 
you know, shoots a, a photo of a bottle and everyone goes, what's that? Yep. Absolutely. You know, and, and then how they, do I check it out? And then it's like, if someone's tagged in it, you can look at it and it brings you down the rabbit hole of, Oh, there's their website. Oh, this is who they work for. And this is, Oh, they also make this. Yeah. And I mean, for small producers, you know, and I'll be honest, I think it is really helping the small producer with all the things that are set against us with large antiquated wine laws that really only favor the large wineries. I mean, right. what large winery do you think is really six, you know, doing a lot better because of Instagram? Yeah. yeah. I can't yeah. think, you know, I, I can't mean, think of that. I think of like the big wineries and it's like, Oh wow. They do, you know, their Instagram presence is amazing. They're doing so well, but I can name dozens of small wineries who are, you know, with Instagram and even Twitter and, you know, everything else that it's like, they're getting their name out there. And other people are really helping them yeah. get their name out there. Yeah, absolutely. it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Podcasting helps also. I of, of course, no, <laughs> I mean, it does. I, you yeah. know, and and I don't mean that for myself. I mean like podcasts that I listen to, where I've gone to Levy Levy Dalton's podcast. For I've sure. learned so much from listening to his show and um, discovered wines that I would have never even known about. Yeah. Well, and, you were the first one to turn me on to the Sandlands wines. Yeah. yeah. Well, and. That was, well, that was just because of Mick Shannon Blanc, but well, I got sucked <laughs> yeah. in. So. Yeah, right. But um, no, I, I think, you know, and, you know, it's when people with intellectual curiosity, it's easy to, that information's just there. So if you're listening to a podcast and someone talks about Alain Grayo's, you know, Moroccan Soraka wine, someone's listening to it, you know, they pick up their smartphone and Google it, you know, and they're like, oh, wow, I can go get that at here and here and here. And right. it's that instant feedback that you can get and you know it just it's 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 a real <laughs> we're very lucky as a small producer to have it because everything else you know interstate wine shipping and you know all the other laws of where you can have a tasting what you can say your wine's poured out i mean right that never helps the small guy right. yeah you know right. Well, Tegan, I want to thank you for not only for sitting down with us, but for taking us on a little tour oh, today. Thanks for um, coming out. Yeah. Oh, are you kidding? This is this has been amazing. Bart and I are kind of now known as the rogue, the rogue podcasters because we're willing to go wherever, yeah, where, no. <laughs> wherever yeah. we got to go, um, especially for an experience like this. And the wines are beautiful. Thank you. Um, we let people know how they can get in touch with the Sandlands uh, wines. Is it uh, just at Sandlands Wines? Sandland Vineyards. Vineyards. Sandlandvineyards.com. Okay. And, and then turleywinecellars.com yep, right. for the Turley wines. And Turley, and Turley um, I know they have a tasting room down in Paso Robles. And in Amador County in and, Plymouth. Yep. Okay. So we have uh, two outposts. Yep. Okay. But so. there's not one up in St. Helena. No, that's or, where Larry and Suzanne live. Oh, you know, okay. That, that was mm. the home of the original Frog's Leap Winery and the Frog's Leap Tasting Room back right. in the 80s, oh, yeah, which right. was... You know, from the stories I've heard, you know, kind of out of the movie Caligula, you know, <laughs> you know, I have I to go research that. It, one. it was, you know, just, you know, it's good times. Part, you know, Larry's living room was the tasting room. Right. So even after oh. they like closed it, people would still show up and be in, you know, in their kitchen, in the refrigerator, being like, oh, I'm looking for the wine. Like, <laughs> We've been closed for three years. So, you know, I think, you know, I, I realize that, too, you know, with the winery out here, you know, you know, wine, it can be all consuming of your life so having a place that's not at your house all the time where you're hosting people and there's always more work to do you can't turn off right. you know so that's kind of what i love about having this place is i can come out here and do work and yeah. focus and go back and you yeah. know focus on the other important things yeah and someday there'll be a bunch of interns 
living here and it won't quite be like Caligula, but it might be like a friend. You know what? If you're getting a bunch of Australians, it might be. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I, again, that's, you know, that's something I really hope I can, you know, help usher in is, you know, there's, you know, again, you look at, you know, places throughout the world that, you know, interns go and kind of share in their culture and just enjoy making wine and meet new people. I mean, that's the, it's the beauty of the wine it industry. It is. It's one of the greatest things, yeah. you know, is, is meeting those people. I remember um, Chateau St. Jean had a group of interns one year, and one of them worked with us at Kenwood, and there were like five down at Chateau St. Right. Jean. They had one car, and they were all flying, flying back. Yep. And the story was, as they drove down to the airport, pulled up in front, they'd bought the car for a couple hundred bucks, pulled all up in front, <laughs> grabbed all there. their bags, left it there running, and <laughs> yep. went and caught their flight. Yep. So I love it. Yeah. Well, Tegan, thanks if the, again for coming out. If there's one thing you want people to know about this area, about the Lodi uh, wine scene, what would it be? I think it's, you got to come visit, you know? And I mean, I, I can tell you whatever you want, but I, I say the same thing to wine critics. I'm like, look, you know, if you rate Latosh and have walked Latosh and you rate Kirschman and haven't walked Kirschman, it's not fair. That's exactly right. And it, I mean, everyone seems like it's like a blasphemous thing to compare Latosh to, you know, an old Zinfandel vineyard in Lodi. But I mean, I think that you guys have a better idea of drinking the wine now that you've walked in the vineyard. Absolutely. You know, and just the whole feel of the area. Like, I mean, there's just a different, you know, wine is more enjoyable with context. Right. It doesn't make the wine better. Right. But it is a more enjoyable experience. And that's, I think, why we're all drinking wine. So I think more people should come out and, you know. I think people need to experience Lodi on Highway 12, not on Highway 99. Right. Right. Yep. I mean, I think that's, you know, pull into town. Yeah. Pull into town um, and, you know, check out some of the places to eat and drive up Highway 12 towards Victor and, and, and get off on some Clements of these side and, streets. Yeah. 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 And Go just, I and mean, if you like seeing old vines, you know, I mean, I, I worry that, you know, we'll all be, you know, I, I feel this way every time we're harvesting the Hain Vineyard, you know, it's in Napa's best soils. And I'm like, you know, my grandkids, like I'm hoping my kids will say, you know, grandpa used to harvest vineyards that didn't have any trellis or irrigation and look at these old photos and they were really old and he claimed that the older the vines were you could make you know better wine and you know i i'm worried that that will be a thing of the past in you know 50 years so uh the other thing I guess I should mention is everyone should go check out the Historic Vineyard Society website as well. Right. Something and I'm a part of and, you know, spend some time on there. We're actually having the event this year up at Monte Rosso. Yeah. So that's a, we usually have one event a year. And, do you, you, know, know, do you know the date for that? I do. Uh, we will post it. Okay. And, and let's stuff. post it. Yeah, we'll yep. post it. Um, but yeah, that's a, a great event to do. Um, I went, I guess last year you didn't have one. Well, last year we had the tasting in San Francisco. In San Francisco and the that, year before it was at Pagani. It was at Pagani. Yeah. Yep. And that was a great day. And yeah, P- Pagani was neat because that was actually what we decided to do was usually we do tours in a region of like four vineyards where, you know, we kind of do tours and then have dinner at a place with wines from all the vineyards where Pagani, we decided to do a intensive. So we did the vid- the history, the soil, the the ampelography Mike officer taught everyone how to do ampelography it was really I mean it was a hundred and like five degrees but it was you know so we just kind of studied one historic vineyard and you know I think people really like the change yeah so yeah and we've talked about it before folks um, but check out the historic vineyard society um, out there and you can swing by and see uh, Morgan and Chris down at the Bedrock Tasting House right there on the Sonoma Plaza and um, uh, have a chat with them as well. 
like to get some shots out. One to Todd Jolly at Sonoma's Best. Uh, always Sondra Bernstein um, from the Girl in the Fig in the Roan Room. Bart, you got anyone you want to... Uh, well, let's say that John Myers is uh, uh, didn't make it here with us today. Um, Sam is down, uh, I think, in SoCal. He's got uh, going to some baby showers. Yeah, which, Sam's, uh, <laughs> Sam's getting down. I think they're getting you know within a month or so of um his life changing yeah it's getting close so yeah. uh shout out to sam as well and shout out to john myers wish you were here we will look forward to talking to you next week this has been the winemakers with uh brian casey and bart hansen and our special guest this week tegan pasalacqua thank you so much cheers thank you.